2: That was fun. That was in the days before security.
3: Hello, Renee. Hi, Caitlin. We're in the same place. I know. It's a miracle. It's nice to see your face. I'm back at home. Thank you. It's nice to see your face as well. Uh, Red eyes, recommend or not? Um, uh, The consensus on my Twitter poll was a big no. Yes, yes. It's a very much wait-and-see situation of how I feel later on this afternoon. But right now, currently, I feel like dog shit. Great. And I probably slept 45 minutes on the uh, plane. And I had a guy behind me that decided that his TV channel changer on the back of my seat was his seat and not mine. So I didn't appreciate the tapping on the back of my head for five hours coming from San Francisco. Having said that... um, I actually feel good that I'm here now and I can get a few things done today. So the consensus is it's a nightmare. It's a love-hate relationship. Sure. The red eye. Yes. Nice yeah. to not lose a day. Terrible to lose a lot of sleep. But <laughs> Terrible to
4: not lose a day. Terrible to lose sleep all night. Terrible. So you were in California. We're going to get to that fantastic episode uh, with a guest host who did very well. Yes. I mean, it's no 20 me, years of SportsCenter hosting, did. yeah. Yeah. Um, so while you were there, you, as usual, were calling matches for ESPN and on court, which yep. is yep. always amazing. Uh, and you got to spend some time, as you often do, with uh, certainly the t- one of the tallest uh, pro tennis player commentators, Pam Shriver.
3: Yes, I'd say that she's probably the tallest. Uh female commentator we have, definitely at ESPN. Yes. Um and Pam and I have worked together for a number of years. I worked a lot of my early um matches um when I was still playing when ESPN had asked me if I wanted to do a little bit of work with Pam. So we and Pam and I go back so far. I'll tell you a funny story about Pam. So there's two stories I'd like to tell you. One is in Pam would always open up her house to me as a young Australian and she was playing at the time with Liz Smiley who was an Australian doubles expert. And a very good friend of mine. And Pam would often open up her home if I needed a week to go and crash somewhere. And I went and stayed at her place in Baltimore a couple of times. And we would practice. And there was one time where she was playing her charity event. And she'd asked me if I wanted to hit with these two kids from California. And I said, sure. And they were two sisters. And they happened to be uh, the names of Venus and Serena, (laughs) Serena Williams. And so I went and hit with them with Pam to warm them up for this little charity event that Pam put on every year. And they were coming in and... Um, I hit with Venus and Serena and we walked off the court and Pam said to me, what do you think? And I said, yeah, they're pretty good. I said, um, the little ones better Uh were my exact words. I still remember this day. And it was only because Serena always had a better, she was more, more technically sound Uh than Venus. So that's the reason why I said that. But who would have thought, you know, 25, 27 years later, they, you know, we'd be friends and I'd I'd be working with Pam and ESPN. And these two would still be dominating tennis, but, um, but the, and the other funny story about Pam is that w- when I was out of the tournament in Tokyo when, you know, we had to pay for our own rooms once we were out of the tournament, Pam was still in the tournament. So she offered up to share her room with me, which oh. had just two single beds. <laughs> um, and so I stayed in her room, which was very, very nice of her because that's, you know, not many people want to share their rooms. So I, I shared my room with Pam for a, for a night or two before I had to move on to my next tournament. And I experienced my first ever earthquake oh with God. Pam Shriver. I should have brought that up in the podcast. But we literally both didn't know what was going on until we heard the cling, 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 cling. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. Uh-huh. But you hear the cling, 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 and it's, the windows are shaking. And we both <laughs> – she had just gone to the bathroom, actually, because she's like got insomnia. She can't sleep. So she came back and got into bed, and then the earthquake started. And <laughs> she thought I'd got up as a joke and was shaking her bed. <laughs> and I said bam it's an earthquake and she said oh my god she put her hand out to me and reached out and she said hold my hand (laughs) and so we were standing there we were like lying in bed and reaching out with our arms and we uh we uh, were holding hands and uh and oh our fashion correspondent has just decided to come into our podcast but anyway oh hello anyway fashion wait let me finish the story so that was my one funny, funny story of experienced earthquakes and meeting Serena and Venus Williams together. Amazing. All right. Well, listen up
4: for our interview with... Jesus Christ. What are you, tap dancing down there? All right. Stay tuned for our interview with Pam Shriver. With
3: guest, guest host, Chris, Chris McKendry. McKendry. Come on, come on. All right. So here I am in San Jose, California. Uh, the site of the Mubadila, and I am joined by the one and only Pam Shriver and our guest co-host for today, Chris McKendry. So thank you both ladies for joining me. Chris, uh, you are taking Caitlin's spot for this particular interview, but I also want to get a little bit from you about your life as well. Um, you want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> are you doing your announcer voice or are you doing your uh, podcast voice? Good evening. Welcome to San Jose and the podcast. There you go. Well, thanks. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the professionalism you're I giving know. to the podcast. But you've already
0: told me to... Yes, to dumb it down. You, that's not what you're going for. Yeah,
3: no. We're going for the dumb it down. We're going for the no educated sort of fun side. Although, actually, Caitlin's, Caitlin is very educated, so you can take her spot Okay, for this time. Playing
0: the role of Caitlin.
3: Yeah. The Drexel graduate. Yes, did that's right. You, did you graduate from what I didn't graduate in, from in anything. Australia. I dra- graduated from high school. Which is, I guess, a positive part. I mean, that's what most players, yeah, tour level players, have done, right? Yeah, I, I was I was thrown into the edu- the uh, University of Life um, quickly. Right. Anyway, it's not about me. Um, we're here with Pam Shriver, actually, Pammy. E. Um, our podcast is trying to get to get to know people a little bit more about themselves and their lives and what tennis has brought to them through their career. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is how
2: do you, how did your family get you into tennis? Um, my grandparents all played. So I'm like a third generation tennis player. Um, I can remember playing tennis with all of my grandparents, um, particularly my grandmothers On both sides. Um, my mom's mom uh, lived long, she lived to 96. So she actually made it through an Australian Open when ESPN had it from start to finish and I was working. and. This is before you could record, so she would just stay up in San Diego all ni- in San Diego, all night long, uh, and I think she got a little tired, and then she got uh, she got pneumonia about a week after the Australian Open, thir- thirteen years ago, and passed away. But the point is, tennis is a great family sport, and um, I take a lot of pride that I can remember playing tennis with my grandparents. I played parent-child with my parents, and now I've played. Uh, mother son with my both my boys
3: now that we have you here Chris I guess um, you actually played tennis as well I don't think people realize that and you know with our ESPN team like most people tennis is a lifelong yeah. sport I mean mm-hmm. and you got into it too in high school I mean it's really important to to, to pass it along to your kids right it is it, it because it is it's
0: it, you know it's so cliche it's a lifelong sport but it totally is um, I, I go away from it for years at a time you know which I know must sound crazy but for me, growing up, I played every sport. I was just a tomboy and, and played every single sport I could. Um, and it wasn't until high school that tennis became something more than just a summer sport for me. And I started to play year round, and then it led, you know, it, it led to a college opportunity. And once I started working so much in television, it wasn't always in tennis. You know, For the most part, it was the big four sports that I covered um, in the US. And, and then working on SportsCenter for 20 years, I didn't have the time to play a lot of tennis. But I always had the background and the knowledge of the sport um, which helped me in broadcasting clearly to Mm. be able to talk the game Mm -hmm. with all of you. Um, But then in the past couple of years that I'm just working on tennis, it's actually given me time back in my life and I was able to pick it up Mm. and and meet a ton of new people and I also pushed, I shouldn't say push, that's the wrong (laughs) word, I exposed my kids to it instantly. And um, we can all, we all play as a family now, and you know it's still it's a milestone. I don't know if can your sons beat you yet?
2: Um, if my fourteen-year-old and I were to play, he would uh, he would beat me now. But he, but they're a little reticent to play. Oh, um, uh, because they parents, don't want to lose to you. Well, just in case I have a good day, I guess, and my underarm serve throws them off a little right. bit. but
0: I, I find that with my kids, uh, my fifteen-year-old, he doesn't play as much as he did. But when he played tournaments. Um, shot for shot he could definitely beat me you know he just hit such a bigger ball and they learned to hit with so much spin as we talked about Mm -hmm. our kids have gotten into the sport with the smaller balls and the smaller rackets and um but i could still construct better points
2: there you go keep the ball in play cut down the four stairs like the good old days exactly
0: but it's fun so that's yeah so
3: anyway we stayed into it and i'm still into it as a you know as a mom so, sixteen years of age, you make the finals of the U.S. Open. What was that moment like?
2: Well, it was a, it was a, quite the summer because I mean, I, first of all, I just won at sixteen. Like that's. Just... And I sir, and I was a serve volleyer. It was about the same height I am now, much thinner. Um, I had gotten that summer to the finals of the sixteen under nationals, lost to Tracy Austin in the finals, <laughs> got a silver ball. Played the eighteen and under nationals in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Lost in the finals, Tracy Austin got a silver ball, and I'd played just enough. Uh, this is a different ranking system; it was on uh, an average of fewer tournaments, and I'd played just well enough from January when I was 15 and a half, January of '78. I snuck in. There were a few injuries. I snuck in as the 16th seed, which, as we all know, if you have seeding protection, that was back in the day it was 16 seeds. So I had. I actually had a really good draw. But I played well, and my breakthrough win was in the semis over Navratilova, who had just come off winning her first of 18 Grand Slam singles titles. Was
0: that your first professional tournament? No,
2: no. I, I had started in the Virginia Slims of Washington, D.C., in my home area, as the local wild card qualifier. So I played all the other local female players that wanted to gain that. Um, it was like a wild card held out for mm-hmm. a local player. And I beat Pam Teagarden and lost to Virginia Rizich. So that started uh, my professional career. I got the semis of Virginia Sons of Dallas, which is a similar level to, say, this premier event here mm-hmm. in San Diego. No, I we're won in San Jose. San Jose. But <laughs> San Jose, well, we've done that. The San, but the, the,
3: the fact that you said San Diego means that you're never going to live that down now on this podcast. That's fine. Okay, it's yes, fine. There you go. Mm-hmm. We,
2: we've, we've, we've done it all week, so I might as well bring it to the podcast. But one, another one of my big moments early was my second tournament was in Columbus, Ohio. So I had to start in pre-qualifying. I've got through pre qualifying, qualifying into the main draw. So now I've been in Columbus a week. This is in the end of January in seventy eight. And my parents let me stay in this second week of school. And it ended up <laughs> At I was 60. a number I was a number two seat and I don't still understand how I was seated in my second professional event, but the rules back in seventy eight was a little different. Was um, it murky? Uh, well, to me, I was like, "How can I have an average?" But they averaged out my second round, uh, Virginia since Washington D.C., which is a high, lo- pretty high level tournament. And then I ended up winning. Uh, I ended up winning Columbus, which was the same as like a tier three, tier four, or a 250 level mm-hmm. event.
0: Mm-hmm. No, when you would go back
2: to school after
0: <sighs> playing these tournaments, what was it like for you? Well, and just with I'm, the other kids, yeah. I mean, there, there wasn't the TV coverage that there is. That, did everybody understand? No social media. Actually, color, actually,
2: or? U.S. Open in seventy-eight. This was a tennis boom years. Um, I played. I lost to Chrissy in the finals. Our match was um, held over a day because she didn't finish her semis beating Wendy Turnbull of Australia mm-hmm. until Saturday. Mine was. I beat Martine on the Friday, so we played Sunday at four o'clock, which is always reserved through the years for the men's final. But we actually started at four o'clock. To follow us was Connors Borg. Wow. So it was Everett, Triver, Connors, Borg. And in the late 70s, that was really the boom time of tennis. So mm. I can tell you CBS had really good ratings for that U.S. Yeah. Open. So it changed my life in in a week. And I went back to school the next day because school started the second week of the Open, sure. like it usually does. Mm-hmm. And it, first off, I'm in adolescence. I'm 16. I was embarrassed, partly. I had to speak in front of, like, 12. 1,100 students out on the front lawn. Uh I went to a K through 12 independent school, McDonough School. And I can remember the headmaster introducing me, and I had to talk to everybody about my experience. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Talk> about <laughs> that was more nerve-wracking. They, they, ju- like, they even liked that in
2: the background. Oh, well, they, they thought did. that was a Good. funny story.
3: But uh, it was, was that like show-and-tell, but your own show-and-tell? Uh,
2: well, show-and-tell, yeah. and, tell and you, I was going into my senior year, um, which I combined with my junior year. I took a summer school course because I knew I wanted to get out on the tour. It was in the era where... It was a sprint. Yes, yes marathon. you wanted to get yes. out there quickly. And Tracy Austin, my, my peer, had, was already out playing pro tennis. So I, I, you know, I wanted to get, get out there.
3: We've discussed that run at the U.S. Open.
2: Yeah, life um, life changed. Who, who was who were your idols growing up? More, my idols, and Chris will appreciate this, and maybe you too, because uh, my idols growing up in Baltimore was an amazing sports city. In the '60s and '70s, uh, they got the Super Bowl and lost a crushing defeat to Joe Namath's Jets in '69. I was seven. That was the first sporting event I remember crying over. We also lost to the Mets in 69 in the World Series, and I can remember the 68 uh, Mexico City games. I can remember Juan Carlos and Tommy Smith. I lived in Baltimore, which was, um, you know, it had an inner city with a lot of turmoil in 68. I was only six years of age, but we had our, like, someone like my second mom almost was an African American woman. We called her Bubba, and she lived in Baltimore City, and we were often. Afraid in 1968. So, anyway, uh, it, all of these things were actually more influential to me mm-hmm. than tennis players. Yes. I mean, uh, probably Billie Jean King in 73 that. when I was 11, that was probably the first time where something really impactful hit me on the tennis court was the Battle of the Sexes match in 73. Mm-hmm. Really? I can totally appreciate that because I grew up in Philadelphia.
0: And I'm just enough years behind Pam um, to remember...
2: Meaning younger.
0: <laughs> to to remember the great sports teams of Philadelphia that influenced me probably to be a sportscaster. Um, and, and, you know, we had the championship at our... My stage was, you know, I had Dr. J and Moses Malone and the 76ers were great and won titles in the early 80s. I had the Phillies with... I mean, I could name... It's weird. I. weird. It, sometimes people ask me, how did you know enough about sports? And I can't even remember when I didn't know which teams were in which divisions. You know, yeah. which which position was everything on every field in every sport. I just remember, you know, Ron Jaworski and the Eagles, we went to the Super Bowl with him. Um, the Phillies, I had Mike Schmidt and Greg Luzinski and I even this crazy guy, Bake McBride, with, a like, huge hair and Steve Carlton. And so it's, if you grew up in a big city in, in the States where your sports teams were successful. Um, we didn't have young female athletes to look up to, but if you loved sports and competition and just playing athletics, you ended up just following the the four professional major sports that were in your city. And for me, loving basketball as much as I did, I also had big five basketball in Philadelphia and
2: Villanova went to mm. the championship and won it in 85 and that was huge. Speaking of Philly, uh Colleges. I made my pro debut. Now, remember, the first year and a half I played, I was an amateur or 15 months. Mm-hmm. So I turned pro at, at the Palestra. 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 I say I've always said it wrong. Yeah, it's the Palestra. Right. We get that. We get a lot of stuff. It's a gym
0: on, on Penn's campus, mm-hmm. but it's, it's. I mean, I call it a gym. It's not. It's a stadium, but it's so Small. old. It is the greatest
2: gym in America. I mean, it's. It and you played your what there? I, I, I made it. First check I ever earned. So I was oh, I, I declared so They
0: hosted a tennis tournament.
2: Yeah. The Virginia point. Slums yeah. of Philadelphia was actually a cornerstone. I think I remember. I might have played there once. Might have no, been at or, the spectrum. Did I play the, the spectrum by the time I got, got there? But. I also I feel like I worked with you on maybe a broadcast when it was at Villanova for a couple of years before it was sold. But anyway, Philly was like D C like a lot of the indoor stops um that led to Madison Square Garden it was mm. one of the stops. Yeah. So that's where I turned pro. I won a three thousand dollar check. I lost in the quarterfinals. <laughs> I think I beat Carrie Melville lot. Reed. Yeah. Um, but that was my first check, three grand. That was a lot oh, yeah. back then, actually. So, what what do you feel like? Um,
3: you know, as far as when you were playing, what do you feel like the toughest thing was for you back then, um, on a on a sort of weekly basis on tour?
2: Oh. Because you think about what the kids have to deal with now with social media and all that sort of stuff. and Staying healthy. Keeping my, arm, keeping my right arm. We talked about it a little bit on the broadcast today. Um, you know how much I relied on my surf. Mm. It was a cornerstone of my game. Well, it was your speed most, was, you know, <laughs> well, was awful. My speed was awful. And your but. temperament. What well, was I mean, right. a challenge. Your temperament was really a cornerstone. <laughs> <laughs> we were just looking at some old video
3: of you yeah. um, where you got passed by a, a backhand passing shot from Chris Evatt and you were upset at the line call and instead of just letting go, you rolled you on the ground. You fell on the ground. <laughs> you
2: fell on the ground and rolled. I had so many of these moments that I couldn't possibly remember this particular one. You were so upset that you wanted to let them know that
3: they'd probably fucked the call up but you rolled on the ground just to make we didn't
2: have the challenge system how much stress would you have been relieved on you if you had the challenge system oh i don't know i probably would be one of these impulsive players that would make too many early in a set Mm -hmm. and then um hopefully learn from it but um i think all of us wished we could have maybe could have had it but the game evolves. I'm grateful that I played in an era where a lot of the original nine players were still playing, like Rosie Casals, mm-hmm. Billie Jean King, Carrie Melville-Reed. Um, I missed Margaret Court had just retired, which, um, you know, she still is the uh, most amount of any female, um, but she was the only one that had retired. Everyone else was still playing in 78. What was one of the toughest moments of your career? I had seven match points in a final playing Wendy Turnbull in White City. Hmm, Sydney. Uh, on my favorite surface, grass. On a, Actually, we, we today we had a match we called that was pretty windy. But remember, it was, White City had a cross breeze. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. So I had seven match points, and I lost. And I had uh, – that was a big tournament. That was a lead-up tournament to the Australian Open, um, and I lost that. That was just – it wasn't a major – tournament loss, but for some reason, losing seven match points in a final really hurt. I was glad a couple years later I was able to win Sydney, so that was good. It wasn't quite as dramatic as Nabotna going back to win (laughs) win Wimbledon, (laughs) darn it. But as far as major losses, probably um, I had a couple of impactful ones early in my career at Wimbledon that I think changed my mental confidence. I had match points on Billie Jean King in 1980. And everyone thinks, well, Billie Jean was already, like, over the hill. She got to the semis in 82 and 83. She got the semis, and she, she was close mm-hmm. to 40. She was always a tough out on grass, and I didn't put that away in 1980. And then my first Wimbledon I had set in 5-2 on Sue Barker on center court, my first time ever playing center court and Sue Barker was a top four player was Great Britain's sweetheart and she wasn't as good in 78 but I lost that match from a set in 5-2. So you've forgotten about it all? Uh, no. Yeah. You know especially <laughs> at Wimbledon because grass courts. It's and, a joke. I, I know, I know but it's like I remember like my ra- my string broke up set in 5-2 I only broke like three racket. I was gonna say how did strings. you even break a string? I don't know You didn't I have topspin. I didn't have topspin and I don't think I broke one all year long. This is like I played with the Prince racket that was the other a different thing about when I started playing '78, I was the first oversized. This was
0: before the Prince Pro. No, it no, was, it was with the, the Prince... Prince.
2: It was a Prince Classic. Yeah, yeah. It Was the green had, had the green throat. I had the Prince Pro in college. It was like black and gold. Yes. Oh yeah. Right? Well, that was my second Prince. And and then, then, you, 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 I've, you, I've gotten rid of a few princes since then, <laughs> and a few princes have turned. We're gonna into, get to your princes later. <laughs> no. Some princes, some frogs. We don't have to. you are gonna
3: get to your princes later. Okay, so uh, Chris and I just watched another video of uh, Chris Everett on David Letterman, and she was talking oh, yeah. about the time that you and Chris lost to the Bush sons.
2: Oh yeah, Jeb and were you trying? Yes. This was in seven. This was in um, 1989. Yep. Yeah. Which was the first year that I, I fell out of the top ten for the first time in almost ten years. I had, I so was burned fault. out. I was literally burned out. And Chrissy, it was her year. She retired. We were both burned out. But we we I had introduced her to the bushes, in like when he was vice president in like uh, eighty six before she started dating Andy after her first marriage was to John Lloyd was over and she was in a funk. And I said, "Hey, I've got this great invitation to go down to have dinner." No, no, I wasn't trying to set her up. Okay, I just wanted to get her, out of, to like get her that out of like friend, like, like you just want to get her out of a funk. I said, "Come on, I've got invited to go down to the um, Naval Observatory, the Vice President's house. They're having a Chinese dinner for the Ambassador like of China." Oh, oh, oh. So, so,
3: but <laughs> Chinese but it, food. But it was Is that President. You you take it was
2: President and late <laughs> Barbara Bush. They were hosting because he, of course, was the Ambassador to China before he ever became a CIA director and then, um, a con- you, know, you know, he had this outrageous career and he loved tennis. So one of the things that I love about tennis also, we talked started this thing about family, were the people in my life that I was able to play tennis with. Like now, the current emperor of Japan, when he was crown prince, one of my favorite doubles matches, was I played with the emperor of Japan. <laughs> But against it's against the Emperor of Japan, not the Prime Minister of Japan. The Emperor the, Emperor the closest thing to God. Japan. It's basically God in Japan. Now, he, he met his wife by the way at the tennis club, and they've been married for you know forever. And the Empress. But so against George Ooh, you could meet God at the club. Yeah. <laughs> the tennis club. So anyway, we <laughs> we beat George Schultz, who was Secretary of State, and and George Bush, who was then vice president. We and, and the and the crown prince was about and and the and God five thank foot God. four. She's and, still
0: dodging the question, even though you might have been in a slump. You and Chrissy are not. Oh, so yeah, going to back to that to a match. A
2: players. No, but you know Marvin Bush. First off, Marvin's kind of the um, son that people don't know as much. Yeah. That's he why I say Jeb, and who was the other Marvin? One? Yeah, Marvin. Marvin played. He would be considered like probably a five point five player, okay. and on oh. the rating scale. It's it, really good. Yes. He, he had a huge serve. Both boys, both men, were about six foot three, six foot four, and we played in the Senate indoor. It rained, so we couldn't play on the White House outdoor, slower Fest. court. We had to play on this fast. We couldn't break. The, we never broke their serve. And then uh, I think, I don't know who dropped their serve. We lost six four in the final. it on Chrissy. She's not here. <laughs> uh, we laughed because, and we know how Chrissy is. Um, she,
0: in the interview with Letterman, said she wasn't really sure she even enjoyed her night at the White House and staying in the limited room because <laughs> she couldn't get over the loss <laughs> not
3: competitive or anything no you and I both played on that bill, that senate tennis court yeah it's a
2: great court why it it is quick you
3: play uh, so I gotta keep those secrets to myself Chris oh really? that'll be
2: on our podcast when, yeah. we, when we interview yeah, yeah. I
3: played with a, a certain senator uh on those courts but they like to keep it on the down low because they don't really want to publicize that they have a tennis court in the senate court.
0: someone invite me
3: I bet it was okay. a New York senator. Um, I don't know. Anyway. Um, I don't well, so there anyway. you go. Well, I was going to a- ask you about your toughest losses, and then that actually might be the toughest loss that you had. Uh, anyway, no, somebody I, who wasn't no. a
2: professional. If I'd lost to you, that would have been my toughest. No, you did lose to me. And actually, you're talking about losing to not me. Not in singles, though. Let's
3: talk about <laughs> you losing to me the one time, because there's only ever been officially one person that has not shaken my hand after a loss. Oh, well, that's or how much after you ticked me
2: off. <laughs> was this in Osaka. No, was this with Liz? Smiling? Wait, did you not do it in Osaka as well? I you know. did not shake my hand in Birmingham, England. England. Mm. You know what? I Why? had another. I don't remember. Yes, she put, she ticked me off a couple times on the court. I know it's you hard to believe. Please. What would you do? I'd just play. Mm. Just be me, but you so, talk. So, so let me tell you. Tucks let me tell you. I got into trouble in Birmingham a couple times. I a single, See how she's avoiding this. Singles four times. No, but I, I don't remember that situation. But one time I was playing against was scarred, my but anyway. my gold medal doubles partner, Zena Garrison. It's probably around the same era. As I got later in my career, I got even grumpier. And
3: I've got. Why do go ahead? Do you tell your so story? I'm going
2: to tell you two quick Birmingham stories. And I, we were moved to the indoor courts. I had a stress fracture in my foot. And so I was went from a grass court where it felt okay to a hard indoor court because it rained as it did back in the Often. 80s and 90s. And it's I said something now, under my breath. It no, had nothing sweating. to do in my mind about race. But oh. Zena Garrison, her ex-husband, interpreted something I said. It's being racist. And then it was blasted all over the papers. So that was really more upsetting to me that happened in Birmingham. And then another time I was playing mm. Rachel McQuillan. This is a classic. This is a classic. So we're on an outside court in Birmingham. This is after I've already won it four times. I'm trying to hang on to my career, but it's not going all that well. I probably didn't shake Stubby's hand the year before. So Rachel McQuillan from Australia. I'm winning this match. I'm up a break, maybe 4-1. It rains come. So we go inside for a two, three hour delay, come back out and she gets out there first and takes my chair, the side (laughs) I was sitting on, takes my chair and sits down and puts her stuff there. And I said, nah, that's my chair. I was up 4-1. I wanted that chair. Things were going fine for me. So I told her, you need to go back to your chair. She didn't get up. So what I did is I went around, got her chair and I moved it right beside where my chair was. So we sat (laughs) on the same Same side. Same side.
3: And then True story. I was there. I watched the whole. Everyone thing. Everyone came out. It was the most popcorn moment uh, I think I've ever experienced yeah. in my life. Watching, we go. She's, she's picking up the chair. She's taking it over there. She's sitting. Literally, was sitting
2: next to one another on the changeover. And then I could, uh, look. I had, that's why I said I said to you today. I've had many a moments. I'm not proud of not shaking Stubbsy's hand. Make amends. I believe in making oh, amends. You hear that? In the I'm making amends. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I would not have been mature enough to do at the time. But now. I am. You 20 years later, she's shaking yes. my head.
3: <laughs> did you ever talk about it to, with uh, Rachel?
2: No. Um, I don't think so. But I did. She was one of my last wins at Wimbledon, uh, which was very satisfactory. I, <laughs> that I, I didn't lose to her at Birmingham that time because these are players a lot younger than me. Uh-huh. You know, I, I like, finished. I, I sort of limped in at, like, 34 or 35 my last match. I, wasn't, I didn't have a lot of singles wins the last five, six years of my career.
3: Hmm.
2: Okay, so you had a lot of uh, singles wins.
3: You were a great singles player, but you were. Uh, Did you, you look lo- up how many? Uh, no, I didn't. Sorry, uh, can uh, I tell you?
2: Get, you? Tell me. Over 620. Oh, singles? singles. A lot. Singles. Singles. Yeah. Oh, Pam was. All cool. tour level, Pam not just ITF padding. Okay, let's not give. To, um, this. Sorry, it's it's so I, I gotta self promote. If you we're, gotta, we're on a podcast, yes. I gotta do a little self promoting.
3: No, wow, senior Um but yeah, you. You know what I'm thinking? If you don't mind. No, I don't. Um, want, you are my co-host today. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're talking about, you know, Venus playing
0: here. She was going for her 50th career title. She is 38 years old. She's been playing for 24 years. On and on it goes. And yet she she doesn't have many more singles wins than that.
2: Well, she has eight hundred. I remember when you said it the other right, day. I want to say, well, that's only. I almost said to you, well, that's only two hundred more than me. <laughs> but but I mean, she's playing. But you know why? Because you played more tournaments. Uh, we played more back in the day. She had that year with the Shogrins where she lost yeah. a year. She's had some injuries, yeah. uh, and to be honest, you know, it's not like Venus hasn't been the most consistent over that long haul. I mean, someone like Navratilova. That's why I always bring up how many singles. I mean, career wins. She had like, like like over 1,600 in both singles and doubles. These are things yeah. that are just crazy. Oh, anyway. So well, numbers.
3: speaking of Martina, um, how did that come
2: about, the doubles combination? So in 1980, I'm 18, and I'm playing the U.S. Open with Betty Stova, who uh, had been to Wimbledon finals in 77, losing to Virginia Wade, losing all three finals, if you can imagine that day. And so she was a good doubles player, a little erratic. She was playing her last tournament, her last tournament, and we got the finals. And we lost to Billie Jean and Martina 6-6. Six and six. The only reason I'm – and this was two years after I beat Martina in the semis the, of uh, singles. So a month later, I'm playing in Florida, uh, Delray Beach area, Deerfield Beach. And I get a – the tour director comes out. This is years before cell phones. Martina's on the phone. For You and I'm like, okay, I dropped everything I was doing. The only thing they wouldn't have come out was if I was playing a match, they wouldn't have said, Martina's on the phone, can yeah. you come in? I dropped everything. I ran in, I she was there, it was the phone hanging the way it was, picked it up on the wall. Yeah. No, no, it was on the tour director's desk. And uh, she asked me if I'd start playing devils with her. And you can imagine how long it took me to sit. I didn't have a partner, so I didn't have to drop anybody. Betty was retiring. I never have to find that out, do I? (laughs) But uh, probably. I mean, as far as uh, business decision, a business decision, you'd have to just say, "Look, I'm sorry," (laughs) but Martinez just asked me to play. So we started Virginia, uh, yeah, Virginia Slums of Cincinnati uh, in January of '81, and we lasted the best part of 10, 11 years.
3: Questions on the devil's thing. Um, one, uh, you had that incredible streak going, and then you lost it in the finals of Wimbledon against, uh, I believe, Liz Smiling and Kathy mm-hmm. um Was it, was it, as, you know, an, as annoying, or as re- was it relief, or was it just absolute annoyance? Like, well, what was it? Was it
2: a? It was pretty crushing. A lot of it was pretty crushing. We'd won four Wimbledons in a row. We hadn't lost in two years and two months. We'd won 109 straight, and we were, up a, we were up a break in the final set. Oh,
3: shit, I didn't know Yeah.
2: That. So when you're up a break in a final set, and you're Navratilova and Schreiber, we, we never thought we'd lose the match. Yeah. But as you know, from knowing Liz as well as you know, she had one of the best forehands, and Kathy Jordan was one of the few players of that era that would was not intimidated? be intimidated yeah. by Navratilova. She was intimidating. She could be, so they flipped it around, they broke us, and then it was just like... Uh, it was just so tight. And then in the end, you know, we were, we were, no matter who you are, you're fortunate to go over two years without losing a match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and most of that time, we, we she was number one in the world in singles all of that time, and I was somewhere between three and six in the world. Mm-hmm. So when you think about our doubles record, it's not just that, but it was how many singles matches. You were both winning at the same time yeah. as well,
3: actually that brings me to a question because I've, I've talked about this recently about the doubles only players now on tour and I mean listen I played till I was 30 in singles and then I played the last 10 years of my career really was doubles only but I played singles till I was 30 nowadays you have seen girls and women turning to doubles only at 21, 22 people forget in our era and I don't want to sound like I'm you know, harping on that people aren't great now but in our era everybody played singles and doubles everyone I even think about the finals that I, I won at Wimbledon one was against Kim Clijsters she was mm-hmm. playing singles I played doubles against her I mean Aisugiyama uh, Natalie Tozia Jana Novotna Rancha Sanchez they were the mm-hmm. dominant doubles teams Natasha Zvereva Gigi Fernandez they were all mostly top 20 Steffi and, and, and Gabby won a Wimbledon doubles title. I mean, Early, before Steffi. playing was yeah. playing singles and doubles.
0: That's Helena why with the Williams why Yeah, when we see sisters. the Williams sisters play doubles with each other, and it's usually just with each other, that's what's so exciting about them. Or even this year at Wimbledon to watch Victoria Zarenka say, okay, I'll play mixed with Jamie Murray. And, one, you're reminded of what a great all-court player she is when mm-hmm. you see her play doubles. But it's so exciting to see these players. Look at the Laver Cup last year. The idea of watching Roger and Rafa play doubles yeah. together, it was an absolute spectacle. Yeah. Martina
2: and Chrissy, they won a major doubles title right. together.
3: Imagine if we saw that nowadays. But I mean, these what happened, I know what happened. The money is well, so Well, it was a business decision. Yeah. Almost like what Pam said. But, it's but gotten Lindsay so But Lindsay Davenport big. was playing singles and doubles. She won, the, she won the doubles and the singles at Wimbledon the year that she won, beat Steffi. Uh, What year was that? 99. Um, 99, won the singles and the doubles that year. Mm -hmm. So I know that Lindsay cut back on it because of the injuries, but wouldn't it be nice to be seeing these singles players playing a little more doubles?
0: It would be, except they don't want to risk the money they could lose in singles if they're tired or beat up. Maybe they don't want to go into these Grand Slam tournaments with a doubles partner knowing if I get to... Quarters or semis, I'm going to pull out of that doubles tournament, mm-hmm. and and then you're leaving somebody hanging out
2: there. But why was wh- doing it? Back then? Well, because the money wasn't, the money wasn't so wasn't extreme. So you know, Open Tennis. When Open Tennis, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Open Tennis. The the founders of Open Tennis, they were obviously the ones that did the prize money split, which was controversial. Not just because it was gender, you know, it was so male dominated, but it was also dominated towards singles. So that started the journey and it's towards very top heavy, and I'm very yes, it.
0: it's very top heavy. I mean, it's it's you know these grand slams keep raising the prize money. Great, and now the U.S. Open champion's getting three and a half million dollars or four million dollars or oh, whatever yeah. it is. What about we talk about this? The the people who are in qualies, first round winners, second round winners, and you know some of the money has to flow down a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean it's. <sighs> I mean, when we... When but that I doesn't play, make headlines.
0: No. Making it, headlines is all in for $4 million. Well, they're million making
3: dollars. over 40000 for the first round. So, I mean, that in itself... When That's we, how much
2: Martina and I would split when we would win a Grand, a Slam? Grand Slam doubles.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's not like the money's not, you know, amazing. All right. So, I want to transition a little bit into... I mean, we can go back to... The, I mean, it's, I could talk to you about a million things. Um... But how did you transition into broadcasting? Because we are here together, the three of us, um, mm. covering this tournament, which is really nice that the three women are here covering a women's event. Um, yeah.
2: So I was 17 years of age. It was the year Borg beat Tanner in the finals of Wimbledon for his, I think, third or fourth in a row. And I was actually asked to do a radio broadcast back to the States with Bob Monsbach, who had Golden Gators production. So that was the first broadcast I ever did was radio. And believe it or not, in 1981, and I'm just 19, but there was something in 78 when I got the finals with all the media and the way I handled myself. I think it planted seeds. I don't know, because it wasn't like I was shopping around looking for a second job or another job. But I was asked by CBS, this is before they had Mary Carillo or they had any female. They had a rotation of like Billie Jean King, Virginia Wade. Rosie. and Sometimes maybe Rosie. Um, if I would join the broadcast if I wasn't in the singles <laughs> anymore. I, I did it quite so, a bit. We're so gonna, basically it was singles, then doubles, then and b- then I did uh, a little bit of broadcasting one. Yeah. Well, I took, you know what, it ended up being a really mm-hmm. good decision. Um, I, I worked quite a few. Sometimes they show, like this first Steffi Groff Navratilova one that went 7-6 in the in the third. I forget, before they had the roof and they do like CBS, when CBS still had it, they do a um, rebroadcast of, mm-hmm. a, of a great Past match, I go. Oh my God, I was on that match. I, f- I totally forgot. But I could see that being excellent television. Look
0: at that, you know how exciting it is for us like w- at Wimbledon. Um, if one of our guests comes in and there happens to be a match on, and we bring the match up, I mean, I felt like I commentated two games with Roger Federer this mm, year at Wimbledon. Mm. You were a good team, by the way. You know, well, yeah, I had to carry him, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, how great was that to listen to Roger? talk about, I think it was the Karlovich match, yeah, right? Yeah, he was
3: talking about his, fu- and it was his
0: future and, and what is it like to play against Karlovich? Struff.
2: Or, I think struck. Struff. Struff, right. Was the other ended one.
0: up beating him. And Anyway, so I could imagine if you're a TV producer and you can get a current player to come off the court and into the broadcast booth, hmm. that's great. Well, and, and we know, like
2: having uh, Bethany on our team yes. some in the last 12 months, when you have current information and you know what mm-hmm. it's like to, to try and hold serve against Navratilova or try and, um, face the Graf forehand at the time. So, it, it, so, but then the, then the first time ESPN asked me to work was that when I lost early at the Australian Open in 1990. So that was 28 years ago when, um, I think I lost to Kimiko Date before Kim, we knew Kimiko before Date. Came, came, came yeah, came before back again. she was good. Um, or as she was on the rise. So, and that was another opportunity I took. And then that, that's, you know, that's been a, that's been a, been a huge help because we all love the sport and we love especially major tennis and to be very fortunate to have espn of three of the four majors from start to finish
3: okay i threw out a question to twitter about what if they had people wanted to talk to you what they would ask you and one of
2: the questions (coughs) was
3: was a couple but um one of them was um what's the most awkward interview you've ever done
2: oh it was jan Tyriak. the interview that didn't happen it didn't take you long uh, Jan Tiriak, um who was playing the tour in 78 he actually was playing with the oversized Prince Racket he ended up being one of the great moguls of the sport he's like legendary Romanian played with Nastasi, owns Madrid anyway he's been, been a big Halep fan so Halep was playing in supporter. so Halep's playing and I went around in my courtside position asked the ESPN if I could go talk to Tiriak and Bobby Feller said yes so I secured, was sitting in um the Oracle main main box, and he he said yes, yeah, sure, I'll t- I'll talk to Pam, but what he didn't understand what it was talk to me on the air, I thought it was a given, because he's savvy. I he just thought was going to have a chat. I was going to go have a chat. I remember this? So I came up, I sat down, and Chris Fowler throws to me, and then um, I started asking the first question. He said, "I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk to you on air." So that was the most awkward interview. It was the interview that I was thrown to, and then I just had to somehow. Do what you do in that position, because when you're in the courtside position, you do interviews, there's oftentimes you have to do a little bit of quick dancing. Yeah, like when you interviewed the drunk Scottish lady. <laughs> Helen. That was <laughs> Helen. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was fun. That was in the days before security wouldn't let... They, they now won't <laughs> let you roam Henman Hill, uh, right. which is really too bad, because you could have some really great moments. That was of,
0: fertile ground for some...
2: Yeah, yeah that was, Helen was too much. Some good interviews. Yeah it's been it's you know it's been it's been a lot of fun to see t- what tennis fans do what they go to to go watch tennis and how far they've traveled and who they are coming to watch and it's, it's, they're very passionate people.
3: You know we, we I didn't ask you the question about when you and Martina split up. This is another question. How did you guys get past your 89 US Open final and re-team in 91? someone had to extend the first olive branch and who was it
2: well that's a great one that's a great question um well first off remember i said to him, we it was the year we lost to the bush brothers in 89 so i was you and i wasn't yes yes okay. but 89 i'm just taking you back to that year it wasn't a good year for me and i was out of shape and i could still play decent doubles but Martina knew and she wasn't in a good mood either, either in '89. So Grouchy here's
0: tour. Here's, Grouchy. here's Grouchy what ended up happening that was too bad,
2: though. Um, is that I found out from somebody else. I didn't find oh, out from Martina. Here we gossip. I found out from somebody else. So then I found out it was true, and she was going to play the open with Hanuman Lakova. And so I needed to find a partner, but I was, like, so down in the dumps. This is as sad as I had been. In 80, 89, I was just sad about this. But, you know, Claudia Kilsch got injured, and it made available Mary Jo Fernandez. Mary Jo was really young in 89. I mean, she was a teenager. So I thought, well, let's try. So we'd never played together, and we got through to the doubles final, and on the other side of the net was Navratilova and Manlakova. And ended up at six all in the final set. No way. Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. Six all in the final set. And we just looked at each other and said, come on, come on. So we ended up coming a couple points short. But I made the point. I made the point. Because Mary Jo had never been to a major doubles final. She was, she was on her way to being. What would you say when you shook Martina's hand? I shook it, unlike you. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> burning <laughs> on my shook it. That was your olive branch. It, maybe so. Um, we stayed friends. We, we had gone through too much. We never went through a stage where we didn't talk. Um, I knew what my role was in that. I wasn't holding up my end we, of the bargain. I wasn't staying in top, top shape, so it was understandable. K- if I can just flat go forward two years later, Zvereva, Natasha, Natasha Zvereva, Zvereva, great was, doubles player. And she great and, singles player. She and Larissa Sapchenko had won Wimbledon, and then Larissa dropped her for Novotna.
3: Yep.
2: I didn't have a partner in 91. I was playing in Havana, Cuba, in the Pan-American Games. If you can imagine trying to get a Belarusian on the phone from Havana in the middle of winning. Th- I, I, it was the last singles tournament I ever won was Havana-Pan-American Games, 91. I got a hold of her somehow, and she said, sure, she'd play with me. Playing play in the U.S. Open doubles. We'd never played together before. We get to the finals, and who's on the other side of the net? Martina. No. no. Savchenko, Savchenko and Nabotna. I
3: know this story.
2: And what does the score end up? Six all in the final set. So now Natasha's in the same position I was two years earlier, playing against her partner that had just dropped her. her. Which was a really <laughs> dumb move from her. Yes, it was. It was smarter of Martina dumping yeah. me than it was of... But we ended up winning that tiebreak. Uh, and so for Natasha... And that was my last major title. Yeah.
3: Did you yeah. drop the mic and walk off after that?
2: No. <laughs> no. You just wanted more. I... I I should have done a Pete Sampras, but I did. But Liz Smiley and I got to oh, one, more, right. no, one more major doubles final at the Australian a few years after that. That's right. Who'd you lose to? Oh, Gigi and Natasha. Oh. And I didn't hold serve once. You know, it's crazy what you remember. You didn't hold serve once? I didn't hold serve. I didn't hold serve. I chose the bad end. That was when the women's oh, here doubles we go. final.
3: <laughs> into the sun. Terrible down I, under. I had to serve into the sun on in my final Oh, I think we've talked about this. That was. I didn't lose who my serve. decides surf? that? Like...
0: I mean, you know, both of you know which end is going to be. Well, good I like was that. playing in
2: sunglasses late in my career, and I think, and um, I, I and I would have considered myself A the biggest, better uh, server, and, and I probably thought I could, I would have held my own more. So I, I, think I probably made the decision. Uh-huh. Um, it's not that like we we lost like three and four, three and three, um, but I can remember. I, it's, I think it's the only doubles match I can ever remember playing, or I didn't hold serve.
3: Yeah, that's mm. pretty bad. <laughs> um, anyway, <Yeah. laughs> um, wow. uh, who decides? I don't know. It depended uh, with Lisa and I. It depended on time, um, uh, like what side, where the sun was, where the wind was. Uh, when I played with Kara, maybe Cara, who was feeling. Kara didn't like to serve with or? the wind. Okay, Martina. Uh, actually, I've got a funny story about Martina. One of her old partners said to me that they tossed, they put through the uh, coin and chose who was going to serve where on what end. And it was at night time, and Martina said, "I can't serve down there because the moon is up there." <laughs> the moon, the moon. <laughs> so she, she couldn't throw the ball toss up because the moon, the moon distracted her. Distracted her. Yeah. So just so you know, even the greatest. Oh. And I, 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 but Pam, when you played with Martina, did you ever have a time where she didn't want to serve because the moon, was in her sh- toss? No. What was, the, what was your partner's name or is it go unnamed? The, she was playing with somebody that I know that told me that story. Okay. No, it wasn't <laughs> That will named. go unnamed That's for the time being. What, I, was the, what was the biggest fight that you and Martina ever had? Like, was there a time where you just disagreed or you got so pissed Well, on? I'll tell you
2: an interesting thing. We were in the middle of our 109-match win streak and I always played the uh, deuce side, the right side. Martina played the ad side, left side. And um, her coach at the time, Mike Estep, came up with this bright idea for us to um, I remember switch this. sides. He thought we'd be even better with Martina on the, first court. on the first court and me in the second court. And I'm like, hang on, we've won 79 straight matches. Why would you change this? Sometimes coaches say things just to say things. So I went along right. with it. And we extended. We almost lost to Sokova and Claudia Kilsch in the finals of Madison Square Garden. We won it in the third set tiebreak. And it was soon after that that her coach and Martina, they realized that we
3: were better the other way. Oh, good. I'm glad it took them that long. All right. So um, last couple of things. Um, you go out of tennis. You go into broadcasting. You get. And you, you have, meet all of us. You, no, oh, yeah. No, Live well, happily ever after. Well, no, you had, you've had you had a bit of a tough, like, you know, 10, 15 years. You mm-hmm. lost your first husband to cancer. Lost
2: my Before that, I lost my only older sibling
3: yep, to cancer. Yeah, to cancer. You lose your husband to cancer, and then you get married, you have a, a bit of it. you have three kids with the one and only George Lazenby, who was actually a James Bond character. The only Australian James, James, James Bond. Bond. And but it's a bit of a tough road a little bit. Mm. You have to deal with getting divorced, raising three kids, single parent custody code, petty, trials. Custody oh. trial. I mean, I don't think people realise that about you, you know. Do you wanna you know
2: well for people at home that have gone through things like this yeah well I think um not to equate anything you go through on the tennis court with like losing loved ones but I do think there's something about um the resiliency of being an athlete and needing to recover from losses that are minor in comparison but um I think it really was a big help um I always had certain things I had the tennis community I had my friends in the community I had I was Baltimore was always such a big part of my um, support system and you know you just you just keep moving forward is the, all I can say and even recently um, you know 16 months ago my oldest son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes which is really a scary autoimmune situation um, and actually I'm waiting to, meet a friend of mine a tennis player who got in the main draw US Open last year JC Aragoni, who went to UVA like Daniel Collins who plays tonight he's a type 1 diabetic making his way on the tennis tour and it's um, you know these are th- that was also a big setback because um, you know your kids it's the same age that my late uh, my ex-husband George um, his first son was diagnosed with brain cancer and he lost his first son at age 19 so that was one of the things we connected on actually was grief uh, which isn't, I've learned, a great base to start a relationship. But we co-parent as best we can. We went through hell and back. But in the end, you do whatever you can do to your to kids.
3: And so, uh, on that note, we're... In we so- got to end on a happier note. Well, on that note, we're, we're in, at the U.S. Open series, the start of the, another summer. Um, this is your, how many U.S. Opens will this be for you in a row? that when once we get there
2: either as a a player or a broadcaster well I just had my 40th uh, Wimbledon and I think I missed one when I was I gave birth to the twins in September of 05 so I think that's the only U.S. Open I've I've missed and I missed one Wimbledon in the 40 years and that was when I gave birth to my oldest child July 12th it's hard to make Wimbledon (laughs) <laughs> no, when you give birth July 12th you probably tried so it's 40, you 40 years it. you know what it's interesting 40 years I can't believe it's been 40 years since I got the final as an amateur it's crazy where does the time go crazy I know well we uh, we love it we we love your enthusiasm Pam whenever you
3: work and. I, well, we I gotta have fun don't the, we the one, the one thing that we have uh, had throughout the podcast and every single person that we've interviewed is the word passion um, from from Judy Murray to Mary Corello to, uh, you know, Kim Kleisters and anybody else who loves tennis. And even you, Chris, McKendry, right. Pam, um, I think it's fairly easy to say that your passion for the sport of tennis is obvious for everybody to see. If it's not on our broadcast at ESPN, it's certainly um, whenever they see you. So thanks for joining me today. Both Thank you.
2: you. It's been fun. We're
3: going to do- go do a little bit of work now. Yeah, let's go.
4: And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Rogeri, Taylor Dalton, and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your
1: favorite podcatchers.